you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. So Joshua the son of Nun called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant, and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the Ark of the Lord. And just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets with the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord following them. The armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the ark, while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, You shall not shout or make your voice heard, neither shall any word go out of your mouth, until the day I tell you to shout, then you shall shout. So he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city, going about at once. And they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the Ark of the Lord. And the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord walked on. And they blew the trumpets continually. And the armed men were walking before them, and the rear guard was walking after the Ark of the Lord, while the trumpets blew continually. And the second day they marched around the city once, and returned into the camp. So they did for six days. On the seventh day they rose early, at the dawn of day, and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priest had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. Good morning, City on a Hill. How are we doing today? Good. Who's excited about this being the last Sunday in summer? Not me. No. Commiserations to all of us. Uh, Today we are continuing the next episode in our series in Joshua. Uh, And as I kind of explained last week, sometimes we're going to look beyond what we just had read out for us in the Bible reading. And this week is one of those weeks, both before it and after it. And so this is a good time, perhaps more than most weeks, to have the Bibles out on the lap, whether in physical form or in uh, digital form, because we're going to be referring to some texts that we didn't just have uh, spoken for us. But some of you might not actually need it to come out because you grew up in Sunday school. 
because today is one of the episodes, one of the stories that is well known in the corridors of Sunday schools around the world. It is known as an epic tale of God's faithfulness and God's power on behalf of his people. But today and these days in our our modern world, this story now functions as a bit of a what's known as a, a Rorschach test for the world. Uh, Herman Rorschach was a uh, 20th century psychologist and he discovered as he uh, kind of worked on identifying the different personalities and what was going on in the emotional processes of certain people that he worked with that uh, you could use ink blots like the one behind me and use different images and the ways that people or what they saw, the pattern recognition that people would come up with, the processes through which they would get to that end uh, description of what they saw in these ink blots, well actually you could figure out a lot about how people's brains work. You can figure out a lot about people's personalities because of these Rorschach tests. And they became very famous because someone would see uh, an old woman, another one would see a pigeon. And you know, there'd be all these, and maybe it's the same, maybe it was an old pigeon, I don't know. But you'd see different things. And so this episode that we're looking at, in Joshua 5, 13, through to Joshua 6, 27, functions a little bit similarly for us. Because we're going to talk about this great story, Jericho's walls falling down, but other people might see it as a horrific story of God bringing down the walls of an innocent people, the Canaanites, in the promised land. And so what will we see when we look at this story in our own life? What will we see about God and what he is doing, what his character is like? and how he functions in the world. What we think about this story is going to reveal that to us. And so today we stand as witnesses, I guess, getting to look back to this historical moment and ask questions of the text and of what is going on in it. And today begins what really will continue for a few weeks now, some of the the heavier content in the book of Joshua. And that's why I wanted to uh, confront this head on in this first week as we turn now with Israel going into the promised land. Now be on the Jordan and in the promised land. So we'll kick that off uh, today. And we're going to walk through this text from 5.13 to 6.27. We won't be able to touch every verse, but I do have three headings for us to guide us on our way through this passage. And so let's first talk about the sandals coming off. The sandals come off. Last week we saw that Israel uh, got their feet wet, uh, but they crossed over the Jordan there as God miraculously intervened for them. Two weeks ago, we met Rahab, the prostitute from Jericho. And Jericho is the city that two spies were sent into to sound out what life was like there beyond the river. And the spies reported back with the help of Rahab that it was time to now move. And so now it's not just two spies heading into the city. All of Israel stands on the outskirts of the city of Jericho. Now, Jericho is arguably the oldest city on earth. It's also the lowest city on earth, 227 metres below sea level. And like many ancient cities or strongholds, it's not, it's not a big city. It is, I think, 10 acres, which for those with a basketball court here, it's about 90 basketball courts. It's about 150 tennis courts, or if you're not sports inclined, it is about five bunning stores big, <laughs> this city, Jericho. Uh, and because it's on the border 
of the, the eastern edge there of the promised land. What do you put on the border? You put your military strongholds. It becomes a strategic site. And so this will have been like a military base, a, a stronghold to protect the rest of the land to its west. And so this isn't simply a, pa- a place that, you know, this, this kind of haphazard group of people, the Israelites, who had been wandering for the last 40 years, could just walk on in and plant a flag. This was a place that would have been, uh, had a significant level of defence against any strangers coming into it. And so that's why our Bible reading in chapter 6, verse 1, started by wanting to let us know that Jericho was shut up. No one was coming in and no one was going out. In other words, this place is impenetrable. And so you can imagine that Joshua is there in his tent with the people having just landed on its shores and he's plotting and he's scheming and he's scratching his head. What are we going to do? How are we going to take this city? And as he's thinking about that, a figure, a man, a commander appears to him. Let's read in chapter 5, verse 13. It says, When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. And so we see from this this interaction, this, this strange figure that's come out of nowhere, isn't just any ordinary man of war, not any ordinary commander of an army. This is someone who just appeared and he makes the ground around him holy. Joshua falls down and worships him, calls himself his servant to this commander, and then he does what Moses did, this great sign of reverence back in the famous burning bush moment. He takes his sandals off because the ground is holy. And you notice the, the interaction between them. Joshua says, hey, are you, are you for us or are you for our enemies? And the guy says, no. It's like when my son says, hey, do you love me or do you love my sister? The answer is yes. And you can't compare two things that are in the same category. And that's really what Joshua is asking. He's saying, hey, are you one of ours or are you one of theirs? And so it's very illuminating that the answer would be no. Because what this seemingly man is saying is that no, I'm neither because I'm not operating on your plane of existence. I'm on another level to you both entirely. In other words, this is not some merely human ally or human enemy. And so what we have here is what we call a theophany. It is a God himself in the flesh moment in the Old Testament, an appearance of God in human form. And it's fitting that this happened right here in this moment because of just how impenetrable Jericho looks to be, that God himself would show up on the scene. We, always, we know from the Old Testament that there's significant moments, theophanies like this, where God wants us to know it took him to come and do it, that he would come and do it. Because he's known for 40 years to this point that his people 
have been wandering and they've been whinging. And so it is fitting that at this point, God kind of rolls up his sleeves and says, all right, I'll do it. Now, parents have to do that at some times. I know as much as Jules and I tell our kids to clean up the house, there will always be Nerf bullets everywhere around our house. They are not getting cleaned up through the kids' hands. Even last night, we told the kids to clean their room before we have dinner. They took that as, let's get everything in our room and put it out in the hallway. And so the room itself was very clean. But you're going to roll your ankle to get into the room. And so it's at those moments that parents say, all right, I'll do it. I'll, do, I'll just do it. This is God saying that he was going to do this. And it's important that we notice that God himself is, is intervening here, that he's getting involved, because we are at the outset of, of a number of weeks here, a number of chapters in the book of Joshua, where this is serious stuff that's happening. And it's important for us to see that it's, it's not just merely human things that are happening. Bloodshed, destruction, taking over cities like Jericho. No, God himself is coming. God himself is acting. God himself is bringing his own judgment to bear on the world. And God's sense of God's judgment, God's sense of justice is on another level entirely to the plane that you and I and all humans operate on. You know, when, when you and I are weighing up things that happen in the world, maybe we're, we're hearing it on the news, maybe we're having people tell us their opinion or a story about what's happening. You know, we say, don't we? Well, there's two sides to every story. You know, with God, there's no two sides to every story. There's his side. Because he knows exactly what's happened. He knows exactly what's going on in the heart of, of men and women. He knows exactly what reality is. And so what God thinks, what God says is reality. It is right there's no partiality in him. There is no possibility for injustice with God. There's no plain favorites. There's no emotional baggage that God has or attachments that God has to kind of skew his opinion or his mindset to favor or bias one particular side over another. God is holy. God is other. God is separate from his creation. And to this point in the biblical narrative, much of what we will have seen, if we, if we read through kind of Genesis all the way through to where we are now here in Joshua, is God brings his judgment to bear upon his own people. And we see that in the 40 years that they spent wandering before they get to where they are now. He brings his judgment to bear upon them because of their sin and their half-heartedness. Today, God is bringing his judgment to bear upon the people who currently occupy the promised land, particularly here in Jericho, because of their sin and their hard-heartedness. Next week, again, God's going to turn his judgment back to his own people for their sin and their hard-heartedness. So it doesn't really matter who it is. God cuts right through. God sees what's going on, and God brings his judgment. And so as we survey this scene at the outset of this episode, and it's one in which our world might use to weigh up. Do we like this God? What is this God like? Is he in the right? We need to recognize first and foremost that God operates on a different plane of existence to us, much higher than ours, that he has never had a single millisecond of a moment where he hasn't known what is the right thing to do and where we stand before his perfection. 
He's never had a moment where he's ambivalent to the selfishness and the injustices and the sin that plague our world. And so God arrives on the scene here in this moment to fulfill his promises for his people. And yet his arrival will also strike fear into the heart of his enemies. And it reminds us today to, to, to kind of see through this moment and this appearance of the commander of God himself of our own responsibilities and how they're different to him. You know, judgment that God's about to bring upon Jericho is a God-level responsibility. And that's why when it comes to our day, we read in, in the New Testament, Jesus say, judge not lest you be judged. That there is, or there has been, judgment, God intervening into the, fu- into the past. There will be God intervening into human history in the future. And yet that's a God-level responsibility. And so often, don't we, our hearts want to put us in that God-level responsibility place and cast judgment on what's going on in the hearts and lives and minds of, of, of people. Yet Jesus says, judge not. That instead, the, the human-level responsibility that we're called to have is not to judge people, but to love people through our words and our witness with such humility that like Joshua, we might be struck with God's ability to handle his responsibility so well that we have humility. We, we take our sandals off, so to speak, like Joshua. And through that humility, we might love the world so well that they see that we're serious about God's judgment coming that we're serious about God's responsibilities to judge. And we see that as right and true and good and inevitably coming one day. So this interaction in uh, chapter 5, it actually, in my reading of how I read this episode, it carries on through to chapter 6. And so our Bible reading started, uh, again, by telling us in in verse 1 that Jericho was shut up and it was inside and outside, both uh, walls were, were shut and no one was coming in, no one was going out. But I think that that's just kind of ins- an insertion to let us know what the kind of predicament was. And then it gets back to the conversation between the commander and Joshua. In verse 2, it says, And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand, with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horns, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall flat down, fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. And so we move from the sandals coming off to the walls coming down. The walls come down. God here tells Joshua how he's going to go about defeating this city, Jericho, and getting through the stronghold. And really, on the face of it, these details, this is a rather comical strategy that God has for bringing the walls down. I've seen this firsthand recently when Jules and I moved into the house that we're currently in. Uh, there was this massive crack going through the brick garage wall that we shared with our neighbours. And then you might remember in lockdown 2021, we had a great earthquake, the great day of earthquakes in Melbourne where, where kind of backyard chairs fell over and we were all struck by the danger that we now had and the vulnerability that we lived in. Well, that 
earthquake actually made the crack worse. And so it got to the point where it was kind of, hey, this wall is going to come down and we would rather take it down than have it fall down upon us there in the garage. So just in the last few weeks, we've had this wall be fixed for us. But imagine with me as the builders were were surveying what needed to happen here to bring this wall down, maybe the the architect or uh, the engineer or whoever it is that tells the builders uh, how how to do their job. Imagine if they said, all right, guys, come in. Here's how we're going to do this. Here's how we're going to do this project and bring this wall down. What I want you guys to do is to walk back and forth and just to shout and the wall will come down. This is crazy kind of thinking, and this would have been what Joshua would have had to relay to his army and his soldiers. They would have thought he was crazy because it is a ludicrous strategy. And yet, God does ludicrous stuff to prove that it's God who's doing it. And this is what we're seeing right here. And so they do it. The first day, they, they march around the walls of Jericho, not saying anything, but only blowing trumpets, and they return to camp. And so too, the second day, and then the third, and fourth, and so on, and so forth. And then they get to the final day, the seventh day. And we read what happened on the seventh day in verse 15 of chapter 6. On the seventh day, they rose early at the dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city, and the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live, but she hid, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout and the wall fell down flat. So that the people went into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep and donkeys, with the edge of the sword. And so on the one hand, what we see on the seventh day is this incredible moment God intervening miraculously for his people. And yet, on the other hand, we also have something that could be interpreted very differently. You know, this is one of those passages where you can see the wisdom in what we do here at City on a Hill, where we, we, we try to build our series around the books of the Bible. So you, you commit to a book and then you go from start through to finish. Because, you know, some, another way of operating for our teaching here on a Sunday is to kind of me to, to get in the prayer closet, me to get on my knees during the week and say, God, God, what would you want me to say to the people? What is the, the message that you would have for your people? And, and you know, I, I could put money on it that, that every single week as I got on my knees, you know, my heart would incline me toward John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Or perhaps I'd go to Revelation 21. In new heavens and new earth, this week it feels like that would be the good thing to say. Or Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I would not be going to verse 21. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. So yes, there's a a sense of victory here as God works miraculously for his people, but this is a heavy passage because God's miraculous work for his people 
is God's judgment upon his enemies. And we can read that and it comes across to us as seemingly this kind of sense of callousness about it. This is the kind of story that has led uh, people like Richard Dawkins to write in The God Delusion. He said this, The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. And then later in the book, he referred to this episode particularly. The Bible story of Joshua's destruction of Jericho and the invasion of the promised land in general is morally indistinguishable from Hitler's invasion of Poland or Saddam Hussein's massacre of the Kurds and the Marsh Arabs. Now maybe you've encountered similar sentiment about the impressions of what was going on here in the Old Testament. We're going to go there now. Let's talk about that. And as we go there now, we, we should be conscious that, that, hey, we're talking about the God who exists. That angry words like this don't exist. That you know, Being angry at a God that you believe doesn't exist doesn't, doesn't quite make sense. And so we, we go to talk about a God who exists. And so we need to go with humility, with our sandals off, so to speak. And so let me just say three things about that. First, we need to clarify what we're actually talking about. Let's clarify the conquests because there is more than meets the eye. We know uh, from ancient Near Eastern literature from the time that there was a proclivity and a habit that when people would be describing war and describing the victories of their own side, they would describe it and write it down in a way that would use kind of intense, total, exaggerated language that perhaps went beyond the bare, literal facts of the matter. I'm not necessarily saying that's here, but we do see in the rest of the book of Joshua that there is some complexity here that we don't perhaps pick up in the account about Jericho. Because we see later in the book, and particularly on into the next era, Judges comes after Joshua, that not every battle that Israel are going to get into themselves will get themselves into could be kind of described as a, a conquest. They don't win it comprehensively. Later on in chapters, there'll be great warnings about idolatry and, and becoming more like the people who currently occupy the promised land. There'll be warnings against intermarriage because some of the nations that are there now continue to remain and exist there. And so when we take those warnings and those challenges into mind, we see that, well, it's not exactly as if they just walked on in and completely wiped out everyone and everything. It's not as senseless as it might sound. But there is a clear command in this passage that Jericho be devoted to destruction. Let's consider why that might be. I've got two reasons. The first, the more positive of the reasons, and that is that we need to consider the, the father heart of God. You know, Israel was, was God's chosen people. God had promised to, to Abraham to, to make through him a family. And when God made that promise to Abraham, Abraham was in this land that they are coming back to. And it's not as if God is therefore telling his people to, hey, go take that strange and foreign land that you are disconnected from and have no idea about. But rather it's bringing them home to where they were originally. And in making himself a family, God had set himself up as the father of the family. He explicitly told Pharaoh, this is my firstborn son. 
Israel. Now, I've only been a father for some seven years, and that seven years has been a blur, but I can remember prior to that, the time before I had children. And so I remember that time of feeling like your heart kind of exploding and expanding and stretching with this new love and affection for this little boy and then later this little girl who joined our family. And there's a particularly unique, healthy jealousy you get for your children, for their protection, for their safety, for their development, for their good. And so part of the removal of the nations that are currently occupying the promised land here is that God's own child would be free and have a place where not only are they protected physically in a world that was harsh and full of cities that were eager to beat off other cities, but more importantly, they might be protected spiritually from the idolatry and the practices of these nations in the promised land. And as we consider that, that leads us to the primary reason that the Bible tells us uh, for Jericho being devoted to destruction and the defeat of the other nations. And that is that God's patience has worn out. God's patience has worn out. This God that we're talking about, he, if we let him have the right of reply or how he described himself, he introduced himself to the world through Moses And he described himself this way. He said, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. So God is full of steadfast love. God is merciful. God is gracious. God is slow to anger. And in this case, he's been waiting years, centuries even, For the nations that currently occupy the promised land to relent of their ways. Now we know through the episode with Rahab that these nations had heard of who God was. They had heard of God's reputation as it went out from all the miraculous stuff he did, particularly in freeing his people from Egypt. Rahab herself had responded to that news about who God was. But these nations, these kings, these people had not like Rahab, rather they'd harden their hearts. And it is shocking to us modern people just how hard their hearts were. Deuteronomy 12 gives us a picture of what kind of things these nations participated in. It says this in Deuteronomy 12, When the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations whom you go in to dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in their land, take care that you be not ensnared to follow them after the they have been destroyed before you, and that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, how did these nations serve their gods that I may also do the same? You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. For they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. And so we're talking about nations that sacrifice their own children on the altar of their gods. One non-biblical historical account tells us that in one city, a bronze statue was made of a god with palms facing up. And yet the palms were sloping down. And they were sloping down so that the worshippers of this god could come and put their babies in the palms of their hands and they would fall down into a gaping pit of fire. Another non-biblical historical account tells us that the parents would, would offer up their own children And then those who didn't have children would go buy kids from poor parents and then cut their throats as if they were lambs or birds. 
And then the mother would watch it all with no tears or no crying. And people would play the flute and drums to drown out the the screeching wailing of the children being slaughtered. And so this is heavy. This is serious stuff. And so when we see this, the full picture, we today in the West who thankfully have had our consciences and our moral compass shaped by the God of the Bible and the teaching of the Bible might actually agree that the time had come. And in fact, if this was happening in any nation around the world right now, you and I would probably be rallying the US to get their act together. We're rallying the, 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 the UK, the, the AUKUS alliance, to get your act together, go in and insert yourself into that nation for justice's sake. Theologian Miroslav Volf, he was born and raised in what was then Yugoslavia, and he later reflected on his view, and go, view of God and how it had been shaped living in a place riddled with war, crime, and injustice. He, he writes this, he said, I used to think that wrath was unworthy of God. Isn't God love? Shouldn't divine love be beyond wrath? God is love. God loves every person and every creature. That's exactly why God is wrathful against some of them. My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in the former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people shelled day in and day out. Some of them brutalized beyond imagination. I could not imagine God not being angry. How did God react to the carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandfatherly fashion? By refusing to condemn the bloodbath, but instead affirming the perpetrators' basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. God is wrathful because God is love. So we see that there might actually be some good reason, godly reason, for the destruction that we see today, but also in the weeks to come. And we'll talk about that more. Now, lest we think that wrath is the big idea of this passage, the author wants to pivot from dwelling on the difficulty of what it took for the walls to come down and then the people to to swarm in and what that included, to bring us back to the story of one particular household and one particular woman who had heard this news about this God and changed her trajectory. The sandals have come off, the walls have come down, but for the repentant comes mercy. And So read with me chapter 6, verse 22 to 25. It says, But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belonged to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it, only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and iron, they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she's lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. 
And so, of course, on the, on the one hand, we need to provide answers for the reality of God's wrath and judgment in the world. But we need to know that, that God doesn't define himself primarily by his anger or his judgment, but rather by his mercy and by his salvation. We can bring, God can bring judgment while at the same time being essentially gracious, merciful, forgiving, and longing for people to come and be made right with him. And we Christians, we, we know that the moment that changed it all for us, where God's judgment and God's mercy meet. That was at the cross of Jesus. To faithfully understand what's going on here in Joshua and what's going on in the Old Testament, we need to read the old through the lens of the new. And in the new, we see that God takes the violence and God takes the bloodshed. He takes all that that exists in the world and he turns it back upon himself. His own son, Jesus. See, God's judgment has come. God's judgment is coming. But there's a, another moment where God's judgment entered into the world and landed upon Jesus on the cross. And when we look to the cross, we have another Rorschach test. What is it that we see when we're looking and thinking about the cross? Maybe we see just another historical non-event, just the Romans doing what they did, bloodshed and violence. But the Bible tells us that we should be seeing the ultimate act of grace, the ultimate act of mercy, the ultimate gift offered to the world, offered to you. See, on the cross, God's judgment didn't win over God's mercy. Now we're told that God's judgment was satisfied. It was finished on the cross. And so bursting out of the empty tomb, a mere 48 hours later, Jesus shows us that he has done what needed to be done to take on the destruction that we deserve and yet win, get up, be alive, and have this offer of mercy that Rahab and her household received, have it be offered to us. Have it be extended to us. See, this is what our world doesn't get about the good news of Jesus and why we need to keep it on repeat. The good news of Jesus is that God has come in the person of Jesus. Another great capital T theophany. He has come to do what only he could do. And really, it does look ludicrous on paper. A poor man in the backwoods of the Middle East in the first century, living a fairly innocuous life, and yet teaching that we need to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And then coming and laying his life down for us and then picking it back up again in victory so that we can have life with him. See, that good news of Jesus is not received by getting our life together. It's not received by shaping up. It's not received by being a part of this one small niche kind of identity group. Not by proving your own goodness, but by seeing your sin for what it is and repenting of it. 
Rahab saw that she was on the wrong team. That the gods of the Canaanites were nothing compared to the God of the Israelites, the God who is there. And so we have the ability through this episode to see what our sin looks like, what it deserves. And when struck to the heart for our own sin, we see the offer of God, the refuge to which we can run, God himself. And today he extends to all of us his arms, just like he did on the cross, that we might come and find refuge in him from his own justice, the same justice that we feel when we see evil in the world, that you might today be able to find forgiveness, hope, and salvation in him. And so God's judgment has come. God's judgment has landed on Jesus, and yet there's also a reality that God's judgment is coming for those who will reject Jesus. The Bible tells us that just like in the days of Joshua, God is patiently waiting, not wanting anyone to perish, but that all might reach repentance, to turn from their sin and to take up the offer of mercy. And so that offer goes out to you today. In Jesus, you can come to God and feel his fatherly affection for you. In Jesus, you can find someone, a God so protective of his people, that he'll be protective of you forever. So weighty in his love that he'll want to stamp out sin in your life. Yet so full of steadfast love and compassion that he'll deal with it himself, as he has by taking it upon his own shoulders in the death of Jesus. And so this is the God that the Bible wants us to see. This is the God that we do see. When we look at this picture, when we take into the account of who God is, and so the question for all of us is, is, what God do we see? Who do we see when we look at this picture? Of course, we're invited not just to look, but to receive. And so we would love for you to do that today. And so feel free, if you've come with someone, just love you to talk to them about what I talked about today, what happened here in this episode. If you don't have someone to talk to, we would love to talk to you after the service. But let's pray now and commit our hearts afresh to the Lord in repentance and faith. Gracious God, we thank you that you are exactly that. A God of mercy and grace, love and compassion. And yet you are a God who, albeit slow to be angry, a God who rightly gets angry. A God who we would want to be angry at the evil we see in the world and yet also the evil we know exists in our hearts. And so God, we repent. We repent of being inclined away from you. We repent of wanting to uh, stick our middle finger up at you and in the ways that you insert yourself into our lives and how we just want to do our own thing. And we ask, Lord, that you would come and you would purify us and that you would help us see and lean on and only upon what you've done for us in Jesus. Lord, nothing to the cross do we bring. Uh, simply to you and your work do we cling. So we ask that you would come and move amongst us and give us this posture that Joshua had in your presence. That we might take our sandals off, that we might have a, a posture of humility. That we see judgment as, as your responsibility and something that shows off your character for our good. And may we operate in this world with humility, with love, 
tenderness and compassion so that we might display to the world the seriousness of your coming judgment. And so bless us, fill us with your spirit and keep us in awe of your holiness, we pray. It's in Jesus' mighty name. All God's people said, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.